0: Well, Cedar Street Baptist Church, again, today my heart is full. Um, I love you so very much, and I'm just so proud to be a part of what's happening in this church and in this community. Um, I echo the sentiments of Brother Kenny and Jody, and uh, just awesome to see God come together and then the leaders that God is raising up in the church to to meet these needs as well. Thank you so much. While I'm in the uh, habit of saying thank you, let me say thank you as well for what an amazing baby shower last week. Uh, you have blessed Ashley and I far beyond what we deserve. Thank you for everyone who decorated. Thank you for the food. Thank you for the wonderful gifts and the fellowship. Uh, well, my life's about to change in a big way, <laughs> but I'm so grateful that I have a, uh, an entire church in our corner to, uh, to help us every step along the way. I don't know what, if Ren Elizabeth is ready, but I know that we are. So thank you so very much for everything that you do. Well, as we begin our journey here in uh, Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17 today, began to think about this message and certainly some stories that maybe would correlate and prepare our hearts and our minds for the message today. I began to think about something and began to think about my love of movies and in particular, sports movies. Now, I know this is going to shock you as someone who worked in professional sports prior to getting called to ministry and as someone from Philadelphia that I have the Rocky series... On my shelf at the house, I also have Invincible, another Italian from Philadelphia who rose to greatness. I also have uh, Miracle, the great movie of the 1980 USA hockey team. And Rudy, one of the great movies of all time about the great Rudy Rudiger. But as as I began to think about this, I realized there's a common thread woven through the tapestry of these movies. Think about every movie that I just mentioned. They all have the same plot line. All right? Someone in humble beginnings who has hit rock bottom through hard work and through perseverance rise all the way to reach the mountaintops. We love movies like this. America pumps out these movies month after month after month. Some of them are based on true stories. Some of them are not. All right, I, I know Rocky's not real, even though my wife says sometimes I act like he's real. All right, uh, Other stories that I did mention are real why do we love them so much i think it it's because we we can understand we can empathize what it is to be at the bottom and then we can also find hope in these stories of uh, of the hard work and the perseverance bearing the fruit of reaching the mountaintops and in in the sports world and maybe even in our professional lives there's some great merit in those stories because they can inspire us and sharpen the edge of work ethic there there's there's there's, there's value in those movies but there's a place where that plot line stops and the Word of God begins. All right, let me tell you the major difference between the plot lines of those movies and the story of Scripture and the Word of God when it comes to our spiritual lives. Like the sports movies, we stand before God at rock bottom because of our sin. But unlike these athletes, we are shown throughout Scripture that our soul has no ability Because of its sin to climb to the mountaintop. We need a savior to redeem us from sin. And not only that, but to sustain us every day with his abiding grace. Amen. Over and over and over, the Bible teaches us the best thing that we can do for our soul is to admit that we can do nothing before a holy God. To admit that we, we cannot make ourselves become innocent of the sin that makes us guilty. To be, to be a candidate for grace, we have to admit that we need grace. I believe that sinners, and that would include everyone in this room, myself included, and by the way, every human being apart from Jesus Christ who's ever roamed the face of the earth, I believe that we run into two obstacles when it comes to grace. Number one, we don't think we need it. Or number two, we don't think others deserve it. We don't think we need it. Or we don't think others deserve it. We don't think we need it because we, we think we can work hard enough to achieve anything. That's the American ideal. And again, in the business world, and the sports world, there's a lot of merit to that. But when it comes to your soul standing before God, there's nothing to be earned. Only sin to be confessed. Also, we don't think others deserve it because we, don't, we never see ourselves as bad as the others that have hit rock bottom and are reaching out to God just like we did. In today's passage, we will look at three different views of grace presented from the viewpoints of a tax collector, a scribe, and the Lord Jesus Christ. In these three views, we will see a God who desires to be seated with sinners. And if we closely listen, we will hear his calling for us to save a seat at our table for him and the sinners whom he loves. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. And if you would stand out of the reverence of the reading of God's holy, inerrant, infallible word. Again, we're in Mark chapter 2, and we'll be reading verses 13 through 17. Hear the word of our Lord, starting in verse 13. It says, he went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Let us pray together. Gracious heavenly father, we love you. Father, we thank you and father, we praise you for this beautiful and glorious day that you have made. Father, I thank you for your amazing grace that we sang about here this morning. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Amazing grace, our chains are gone and we've been set free. But Father, we confess that we still have stumbling blocks when it comes to grace. Help us to understand as we walk through this passage today that grace is something that we need every day and something that we need to extend to others the way that it's been extended to us, Father. Speak to our hearts, Father. I pray that you would just saturate this sanctuary with your precious Holy Spirit. Take the burdens, the troubles, and the thoughts of the day, Father, and cast them aside. Help the minds to be cleared, the hearts to be opened, to hear your word and to be changed by it so that we can respond to it in repentance and faith in your Son, our Savior. It's in his name we pray. And God's people said, Amen. Please be seated. So again, as we walk through Mark chapter 2, we're going to be talking about grace. and We're going to be looking at grace from three different viewpoints. And so as we look at the first viewpoint, I want to draw our attention to verses 13 and 14 with the, the calling of a sinner. Okay, the calling of a sinner. Let's walk through these verses and then we'll put it in context. Verses 13 through 14. He went out again beside the sea and all the crowd was coming to him and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed him. Now, let me say a very helpful exercise when we read the Word of God. This is something that will force you to slow down in your Bible study, okay? It's something I, I practiced, and I did it this week, and I thought maybe I'll just share this as we're walking through the passage today. When you read the Word of God, take enough time to engage the senses all right, it was Ignatius back in the 15th century. He wrote a book called Spiritual Exercises. And he said the gospel, specifically the narratives, they're great stories. Obviously, they're true stories straight from the word of God ourselves, or God, our, our creator. But when we're reading the word of God, we need to have in our mind's eye exactly a picture of what we're reading, like it's a movie that's playing out in our mind. So picture these things. This is what I picture as I read this passage. Feel the grains of Capernaum sand shuffling through your sandals. Listen to the gawking of sea se- gulls gliding along the Galilean shoreline. Taste the sea salt air as it comes off the waters and rises above the boats coming into harbor. Smell the baskets of fresh fish coming into the market overflowing with the day's latest catch. Watch the scurrying of anxious feet as the crowd follows Jesus into the marketplace. And notice this, notice the eyes of Jesus Christ as he scans the crowd and then takes a curious second look at a tax collector sitting at the table, writing in his Roman ledger as another angry Hebrew pays his tax and walks away in disgust. Put your mind into that story. All right, Right on the Galilean seashore, people are following Jesus Christ. You can hear the seagulls. You can smell the salt air. You can smell and see the baskets of fish as the fishermen are coming off the boats and they're walking into the market. And Jesus is walking along and people are scurrying to follow him as he's teaching. And all of a sudden, as he scans the crowd, he takes a second look at this Jewish tax collector sitting in the tax booth. Now, why is that significant? If we don't understand the historical context of a tax collector, this will make absolutely no sense. And the reason why is today we don't necessarily consider tax collecting a a bad profession. Okay. We've got tax collectors here in our church. All right. In, in American in 2016, that is an honorable profession, but understand the historical context of what it meant at that time. Okay. Back in biblical times in Galilee and in the surrounding areas that were ruled by the Roman Empire, they practiced something called tax farming. All right. It was a form of subcontracting. And what they would do is that the people in Rome would subcontract to individual Jewish collectors within each region. All right. So the Roman Empire, which was the sworn enemy of the Jews who was oppressing the Jews, they would actually call a Jew to work for them as a subcontractor to collect taxes from their own family members. Now, if that's, if that's bad enough, Think about this. There were two different types of main categories of taxes that they would collect. All right? They would collect stated taxes and duty taxes. Stated taxes are pretty close to what we deal with today. All right? Most of you know what these stated taxes are. You have your, well, you have your census tax, which for them, all men 14 to 65 and all women 12 to 65, simply for living in these Roman areas, had to pay tax. But they also paid a ground tax. Anytime if they had grain, wine, oil, or fish, they had to give a percentage of what they had to Rome. And then they had income tax, which was 1% of their annual income. But then you had the duty taxes. This is where the evil oppression comes in. All right. They would tax people on trade routes and local roads. They would tax docking boats in the harbor. They would tax additional import and export fees. They would tax carts that were used for transport. They would even tax per wheel on the cart. And for the Jew to make any money at all, the Jew would have to collect what was owed and then charge a surplus on top of what was owed and keep that for their salary. So now you can imagine why the Jewish community hated the Jews in their own family that went and started collecting tax for the Romans. Because they were going to the enemy's side and then they were making their money based on charging their own family more than they were owed. It was dishonest. It was deplorable. And now you know why the Romans loved doing it. It was cost-effective for the Romans. They were smart. But it also took all the anger that they had towards the Romans and cast it on their own family members as scapegoats. So the tax collectors were absolutely deplorable in Jewish times. Absolutely deplorable. It was organized extortion. You know, I remember, it makes a lot more sense to me now, but when I was a kid, my mother used to love that 1970s miniseries, Jesus of Nazareth. I don't know if you remember, it was like a four-part series that came on television, and Robert Powell, the British actor, played Jesus, and uh, James Earl Jones was one of the, the wise men. He, he plays great in every role he plays, with that famous voice of his. But uh, there was one scene in that movie that I remember when Jesus calls Matthew, Levi, and Levi and Matthew, the same person. He calls Matthew to follow him, and Peter, who's a fisherman, says, how could you do that, Jesus? He's my blood-sucking enemy. Now I completely understand why he said that. As a fisherman, they had to deal with the Romans and they had to get taxed on giving a percentage of the fish over to Rome and then pay a tax on top of that. And to have one of his own people do that, he hated the tax collectors. That puts in perspective who a tax collector is. Now, let's zero in specifically on Levi. Or for this message, I'm just going to say Matthew. Because Levi is Matthew. And we know him more by Matthew because he's one of the writers of the Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. The author of Matthew is the one that we're talking about, Matthew, who originally was called Levi. So let me just say Matthew to avoid confusion. For Matthew to get called to follow Jesus Christ, think about what he's giving up. All right? His family's already disowned him, so he doesn't have the support of family. All he has is a nice, comfortable, financially prosperous job. But now if he gets up and walks away from the tax booth and follows Jesus Christ, he's got no job to come back to. So he's got no job and he's got no family. Which means when Jesus says, follow me, and he follows the Lord Jesus Christ, safety net gone. It is, I am all in on Jesus and I got nothing else to fall back on. It's either Jesus or nothing. That's the cost of what it meant for Matthew to follow Jesus the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew saw the offer of grace extended through Christ, and he knew his need for grace because of his deplorable profession, but he responded immediately by leaving everything behind and following Christ. So as we look at this particular aspect of grace, we can empathize with him because we too are sinners. And so let me ask you this. In 2016, First of all, do you know the two differences between the tax collector and many of us sitting in the room today? Let me tell you the two differences. He knew how much of a sinner he really was and he was willing to give up everything to receive grace. Do we realize when we throw the word sinner around in a worship service, do do we know how that applies to us? That's a constant battle that every teacher, preacher, A mature person in the faith struggles to teach someone who's young in the faith or a skeptic who wants to learn about the faith. It's so hard to teach on sin because all we do is continue to measure ourselves by the standards of the rest of the world. And I promise you, I've said this in weeks past, if you compare yourself to other people, you'll always, always, always find someone worse than you. And it will give you false comfort that you're okay. But if you compare yourself by the holy standards of God, you will never measure up. And that's why you need a Savior. All of us. All right? When I say sin, I and Jesus redefines this. We'll talk about this as we walk further through the gospel later on in weeks to come. Jesus redefines sin as not the letter of the law, but the heart of the law. Again, I always go back to to the sin of adultery. Because he says to the Pharisees, it says, thou shalt not commit adultery, but I say unto you, if you've even had a lustful thought in your mind, you've already committed the sin in your heart. And that, at that point, every single man who's walked the face of the earth kind of stares at their shoelaces. Right? When it comes to the holiness of God, we just, we don't, we don't add up. And that should not make us bow in the fetal position. It should make us rejoice in the grace. It it should make us rejoice in the grace. We decrease and he increases because we figure out just how amazing that grace that we sung about this morning really is. So now the second part of that, that he was willing to give up everything to receive that grace, I ask all of you, what are you willing to give up to receive that grace and to live in that grace every day? Because you can be forgiven of your sin, all right? That's the grace offered at the time of salvation and salvation can be sealed in a moment, All right. But there can be abiding sin in your life that is separating you from a wonderful relationship in your daily life with the living God. And what are you willing to let go of and distance yourself from so that God can draw you closer to Him and you can enjoy this fellowship with Him and this relationship with Him? Because that ultimately is the most important thing that you were created for. What are you willing to give up to receive that grace? I'm going to get very blunt with you here because I've prayed about this. And in this particular community, in this context, I, w- I want to be tangible about what I'm talking about. Are you willing to tell friends that you're, you're not going to partake in an all night drinking binge anymore? Even if that means you're not, you're going to be excluded from social circles when you tell them that. Are you willing to serve the kingdom of God and you have your family serve him in such a way that you're willing to tell your kids rec ball coach, Hey, listen, Wednesdays and Sundays are for church. Are you willing to be honest with everyone in your life about secrets that you've hidden, even if it's going to affect your job or your marriage? Are you willing to get all of those skeletons out of the closet and say, I'm just going to be honest. I'm not going to live two lives anymore. I want God's grace. I can't earn it. I can receive it as a gift, but I have to follow Jesus. And to do that, I got to leave something behind. I have to sacrifice the life that I was living for the life I'm called to. Matthew left everything. The moment he got up from that tax booth, he left his entire former life behind, and he followed the Lord Jesus Christ. You can't have our feet in both worlds. He could not remain a tax collector and still follow the Lord. What are we willing to sacrifice? I don't know every individual situation in here, but you do. You know your own heart. You know your own life. You know a situation where God's calling on you to sacrifice something. Whatever that is, I pray that you would be receptive to the Holy Spirit and like Matthew, respond to the offer of grace and say, Jesus, I'm going to follow. Jesus, I am going to follow. That's the call of the sinner. Now let's talk about the condemnation of a scribe. The condemnation of a scribe, verses 15 through 16. It says, And as he reclined at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples, For there were many who followed him. And the scribes of the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? All right, now we need to find the historical context of this to understand why they're saying this and to see what the meaning of this passage is. What can we understand about the scribes? Well, the scribes were Jewish record keepers. Okay, They worked right alongside the Pharisees. And they copied these laws on scrolls They were the keepers of the law. They knew what was called every jot and tittle of the law. Every character written on those scrolls, they knew the laws inside and outside. And they were serious about enforcing the laws. But as we said a few weeks ago, Jesus, or excuse me, God hands down to, to Moses these Ten Commandments. And and the nation of Israel is so intent on enforcing these commandments and these, these, these laws that were handed down to them, they had this, this book called the Mishnah, where they put all these other man-made laws in to protect themselves as hedges of protection that they wouldn't violate any of the laws. And they ended up making 613 individual laws. I think their heart was in the right place when they first began to pursue God, but then their heart gets out of place because they're more concerned, again, with the letter of the law instead of the heart of the law. And because of the letter of the law, they thought that they're holy. They thought that they didn't need the grace and mercy offered by the, by, by the Lord Jesus Christ in this passage. And they also thought that the tax collectors didn't deserve it. They completely missed the boat. The tax collectors were blatant lawbreakers, and the scribes believed they were beyond the reach of God's grace. They were warned so many times about the danger of being influenced by fellowshipping with blatant blatant lawbreakers that they had a zero-tolerance policy and demanded everyone to do the same. They thought they were beyond the reach of God's grace, and they themselves thought they were beyond the need of God's grace. But no one ever is beyond the reach of God's grace. If you're in this room today and you think you've done something so bad that God could not possibly offer you His grace, then you don't know God's grace. No one, past, present, future, is ever beyond the reach. But I don't care how good a week you've had. I don't care how good a week you've had. No one in this room is beyond the need of His grace every single day. That is the importance of the grace of God. And when it comes to sinners, it's never an issue of us versus them. We can never look at anyone and say that we're more deserving of God's grace. In this world, there are only two types of sinners. Those who've been saved by grace and those who haven't been saved by grace. And the grace is offered to all of them. For those of us who are Christians, we have received that grace. And those who are not Christians haven't. And as the old proverb says, Christianity is... Simply one beggar who's been fed offering another beggar that same bread. We can't deny anybody else that bread. We can't be a scribe or a Pharisee because none of us have obeyed the law. All of us have to offer the same grace to others that has been offered to us. So here's a question for thought. Is there anyone you would not want to be sitting next to you listening to this message today because of a sin of their past? Would you not want to offer that grace to somebody else because of their socioeconomic status, their skin tone, their political agenda? Do you think in any way that you could possibly be more deserving of God's grace than them? It is a free gift, it is to be received, and it is to be offered. That's the condemnation of a scribe. Finally, we saw the call of the sinner, the condemnation of the scribe. What about the conditions? of a Savior. Let's look at verse 17 one last time. Look at it with me. And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. We need a physician, and he is the only one who knows our ailment, which is sin, and a final solution to our ailment, which is forgiveness through his grace. In fact, I have said over and over again, if you, ever, if you had to come and ask me, how do you know that Christianity is the only true path to the living God? I have friends of other faiths, even in my own family, people who disagree with me on this, they say it's closed-minded. It's closed-minded in 2016 with the internet and all the, the mass information that we have available to us now to possibly say that Pursuing the Lord Jesus Christ is the only true path to God. That was a stumbling block for me before I became a Christian. I could not believe that there is possibly one way to God. But let me tell you why God has changed my heart and my mind on this. Christianity, believing in the Lord Jesus Christ, it is the only faith that uniquely identifies the problem of man, which is sin, and offers a final solution to the problem, which is Jesus Christ. There is no other faith. The Jewish faith gets it half right. All right, The Old Testament is this building up of the issue in our life, which is sin. We see in Genesis chapter 3, the fall of man and the train wreck that our world has been ever since. And all of us struggle with it every day in our relationships. And we just know something's not right with us. But where the Old Testament... Sacrificial system was incomplete. It had a temporary covering over of sin. There was no final solution except Jesus Christ, who is the Passover Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Praise be to God. He takes away the sins of the world, and our response to that offer is to repent and place our faith in Him. He says, At this last chapter, he said, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Now, that's an ironic statement. And the reason why it's ironic is there's no one that's righteous. So everybody fits that category. But he's kind of basically in in a passive-aggressive way calling out the scribes and the Pharisees. Because as the scribes and the Pharisees hear this, they're basically saying, Don't worry, the righteousness that you're offering, we don't need. All right, We don't need it. We, we are righteous. We don't need you. Jesus, in an indirect way, is saying, if you're righteous, you don't need me. But by the way, none of you are righteous. And I've come because of you. Because I love you, and I want to establish an eternal relationship with you as I establish my heavenly kingdom on earth. And to do that, I need to offer you this grace. He came not to call the righteous, but to call sinners. And that leads us to our conclusion And our conclusion is this, Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to take His seat at the sinner's table. Have you saved a seat at your table for Him and the sinners whom He loves? Let me say that again. Jesus Christ is the Son of God who came to take His seat at the sinner's table. Have you saved a seat at your table for Him and the sinners whom He loves? You have to save a seat for Him because you're the sinner he's coming to sit with. But you have to save a seat for the ones he loves because he's calling to give grace to those sinners every bit as much as he wants to give it to you. Again, the stumbling block that we run into, all of us struggle with this at some point in our lives. We do not think that we need God's grace and we can look at others and believe that they don't deserve it. Let God's word today teach us that we are never beyond the need of it and others are never beyond the reach of it. Grace is a gift to be received, and it is a gift to be offered. And that's the calling in our life with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who loves to be seated with sinners. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, again we love you. Father, let us never not be amazed by Your grace. Let, we, let us never sing that famous hymn and think that grace is somehow normal. It is amazing and abundant and even scandalous that You would come and sit with us and offer us this eternal grace. Father, for those in this room who have never truly placed their faith in Jesus Christ, they've never seen the depth of their nature of sin, They've never turned away from that life, placed their faith in your Son, and like Matthew, rose to their feet and say, I will follow you. I pray that today would be the day, Father. Let today be the day of salvation, that they would say, I will follow the Lord Jesus Christ. I confess that I'm a sinner. I repent of my sin, and I am willing to follow Jesus. And Father, if there is anybody in this room who is following Jesus, but sin has crept into their life, it has not been confessed, and they're in a season of life right now where you are not in communion and fellowship with them, let let today be a day of confession, a confession to you, confession to those whom they love. Father, let this be a day of reunion. We thank you for this amazing gift of grace, Father. Let us receive it and offer it with joy. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.